main takeaway mm. and, and you have the impression of a small person part of building something which is part of history because you know in Europe this is the first time that we were building a vehicle that's going to fly human we didn't have that experience before yeah. so we are creating a special competency in Europe and that's also the first time in history that we are on the critical path of an American very large campaign uh, because normally in Europe, you can see that with the space station, uh, we are doubling what the Americans are doing. We are acting as a backup, but we are not on a critical path. Yeah. If, if we do not deliver the service module to Orion, Orion cannot fly. Very simple. Hello and welcome to the New Space Vision podcast sponsored by Lifeo, where we discuss new space technology, finance and innovation with executives, founders and more exciting people from the startup and new space ecosystem. I'm Daniel Seidel. And I'm Sven Shivara. And today we have a very special guest here on the podcast. When I started to work in the space industry, that was roughly 10 years ago, I was working at a company which back then wanted to build hardware to send it into orbit and then ultimately to the moon in the context of the Google Lunar X Prize. The prize is now any longer and most of the companies are also not existing, but the person which we're having today on the podcast is really taking the idea of in orbit and outer space exploration, especially here in Europe on a whole nother level. And we are very excited to have Helene Ubi today on our podcast, co-founder and CEO of the Exploration Company, which is a developing a modular reusable orbital vehicle. And uh, Helene, we thought about crashing the agenda today a bit and ask you basically the biggest question at the beginning. So um, how do you imagine the future <laughs> of the space industry in 2050? Uh, how will it be? So first, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very honored to uh, be part of this podcast. Um, 2050, so this is uh, roundabout in uh, quite a quite a significant quite a quite a long time. So 35 years roundabout a bit more. Uh, and if we look 35 years back <laughs> and we see how much the space industry has changed, I think nobody could have, you know. Uh, even imagine uh, the changes that we went through. But okay, I'm happy to um, to jump on the challenge. Um, and uh, to answer your question, I think we need to look at what are the like, big trends which are going to be transformative. Uh, one big trend I see is on the way we carry stuff, the way we travel in space. Uh, the new standards, and that's what we are applying the standards at the expression companies, that the vehicles are going to be reusable. So this is true for rockets today. That's going to be true tomorrow for spaceships, so orbital vehicles. Second standard is that uh, vehicles will be able to refuel themselves in orbit. Yeah. And this is just normal if you think about transportation on Earth, every car, every ship, every airplane, etc. So I think we're going to see the same in space. Elon Musk is, let's say, paving the way with Starship. We are also following this trend. We are building currently a vehicle that ultimately can be refueled in orbit. And the third trend is that vehicle will be able to carry humans. Because something really new we see today is that we're not anymore going to Moon, Mars, to perform some scientific experiments and to explore. We have the incredible chance, like in the 16th century, people were living, you know, discoveries of the new worlds to settle. I mean, from, of course, at that time, a European perspective. Um, and And... We all have the chance to live, I think, now at a time when humanity is going to settle in space, step by step. And like in the 16th century, that's not going to be done in 
one year, five years, 10 years, going to take decades. But if I look in 2050, I would imagine we have several bases at lunar surface, we have bases at Mars surface, we have stations orbiting Mars, stations orbiting Moon. I think the first step of sustainable bases will be stations around Moon first, as I mean, this is currently being built. Mars, probably again stations, or like say safe ships that fly around and then fly back, because it's way simpler to build stations than to land and build in situ a base, and we've already experienced of the station with the session around one year. So that, that's what basically I would see, a huge transformation in transportation, sustainable habitats around Moon, around Mars, the capacity to use space resources at lunar surface and or at Mars surface to refuel spacecrafts, and uh, humanity who, with pioneers, because it would be at this point in time, pioneers have started to settle uh, within the, the, the solar system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's great to hear from your... Uh, from you directly, who's really forming uh, this 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 development here in Europe, and I I in my new office have uh, a poster behind me which is printed of the Integrated Space Plan, which is I think was created in the 1980s, in which so the hundred years time plan and how humanity will uh, conquer the, the 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 space system. We are unfortunately not where we should have been on that plan in 2023. Uh, but I think over the last decade, we definitely have seen an acceleration. So I hope we can uh, catch up. But um, before we speak about the exploration company and what you're doing there, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, mm -hmm. What sparked your interest in space technology? Because at the very beginning, if I'm correct, you're not a space engineer by training, right? And your first career steps also haven't been uh, directly in the space ecosystem. So, um, yeah, why, why are you now working in the space industry and how that has this come about? Yeah, it came about like, you know, if you think about your your partner or the person with whom you share your life, suddenly you meet someone, you fall in love, and you just spend the rest of your life with that same person. So space is a bit like that for me. So I'm a mathematician and economist by training. I had the first part of my professional life in the startup environment, investing in startups, advising large companies about their digital innovation. And then I simply followed my husband. Uh, we landed in Bremen, I had to look for a new job. I knocked on the door of Airbus. They were mm -hmm. kind enough to hire me. And uh, I felt in love with space. <laughs> so that's that's how it happened, basically. And then it became clear for me that's going to be the rest of my life. It will be uh, within the space industry. Um, because, I mean, it's very rare, right? We are doing a kind of business where if one person fails in what he or she is doing, it can trigger a whole loss of mission. Yeah. So basically, we can fail of something that took five, ten years to be built and costed hundreds of millions or billions to be developed. And I think this gives a very, very specific uh, mindset in our industry. We have people who are humble, who are team workers, who are passionate about what they are doing, who are able to sustain, to you know, to work on programs for several years. And I think I love the inspiration about space, the technological challenges, the fact that this is building the future of humanity, but also the mentality of the people who are in this industry. Yeah. And um, maybe as a follow-up question, right, you said you, you moved to Bremen and you started working at Airbus. What I found out in my, my research prior to this podcast is that you, you really made a, had a, a stellar uh, career within Airbus, uh, which obviously is a, is a huge company. You, you, When I uh, read that correctly, you've become head of innovation at Airbus Defense and Space within five months or so. Is, how, how was that possible so quickly? Yeah, Yeah, because I started as a 
I was I was even not a manager when I started, and I started part time. I can tell you because I was just I just had uh, given birth to my uh, fourth uh, uh, child. So uh, yeah, first I started working full time and not part time. But basically, what happened is that the Airbus Defense Space was created, it became created because of the the merge between Astrium and, and Cassidian, and um, the CTO at that time, Andrew Anderson, uh, was. Uh, willing to have a few flagship projects that would basically create this new culture of defense space and was also willing to have a new innovation process within the company. And I knew nothing about aerospace, but in my past uh, career, my specialty was innovations, funding startups, developing innovative projects in cooperation between startups and large corporations. So I had, I would say, this expertise. And then I, I got lucky. My name was mentioned to work on a kind of small group that would define the uh, innovation strategy for defense, airbus defense and space. And at the end of this uh, few weeks uh, work, then Andrew Anderson offered me the, the job of being the head of innovation for the, of the new structure. And uh, yeah, I knew nothing. So, you know, sometimes you have sponsors in your life who believe in your potential. And this is what happened for me. And I'm super grateful to him. And that's also what I'm trying to do with uh, my team when we hire people and when we see people who have potential to trust them and uh, yeah, I think this develops qualities and capacities in people that sometimes they've even thought that you know they would be able to do such things. Yeah. And that's what happened to me. And I'm now trying, you know, to pass the ball and to make it also for other people around me. And uh, one of the last activities uh, you, you had before you started your own stuff was basically being VP of the Orion Spacecraft's uh, ESM, yeah. which is a propulsion and maneuvering module, which was contracted by NASA actually to be part of Artemis. Uh, so super cool. Uh, what was that like for you? It was awesome. Uh, working on a vehicle that carries human is uh, something very, very, very special. This podcast is sponsored by LiveView. LiveView's mission is to unlock the full potential of Earth observation data for humanity and life on Earth through AI. We are the global market leader in infrastructure monitoring and are bringing the power of satellite data analytics to other industries globally. Talk to us to find out how satellite data can benefit you and your company via podcast at live-eo.com. It's uh, something very, very, very special. It's a complete different way uh, if you, of, of taking decisions, of assessing risks. Working hands in hands also with NASA is something which is, uh, it's very cumbersome, it's very heavy, but it's also... A, a great, great learning uh, curve, and you work with people who have flown uh, a lot of humans, also with people who had, um, let's say, the experience of a loss of mission with humans on board. So it creates a very, very specific atmosphere. And you also meet astronauts who participate sometimes to the review so that they can understand better, uh, let's say, the the problems that we are facing, so that you know, they, they if something happens, then They can faster, I would say, understand what could be the root cause of these problems. So you feel a very, very special responsibility being part of uh, such a mission. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's my main uh, main takeaway. Mm -hmm. And and you have you have the impression of you are a small person part of building something which is part of history because you know in Europe this is the first time that we were building a vehicle that's going to fly human. We, we didn't have that experience before, yeah. so we are creating a special competency in Europe. And that's also the first time in history that we are on the critical path of an American very large uh, campaign. 
uh, because normally in Europe, you can see that with the space station, uh, we are doubling what the Americans are doing. We are acting as a backup, but we are not on a critical path. Yeah. If, yeah. if we do not deliver the service module to Orion, Orion cannot fly. Very simple, right? So that these two things, first first time in, in history of in Europe that we are contributing to flying humans, and first time in history that we're on a critical path of an American very, very important strategic mission, uh, was something also very special because you work for something which is historic and uh, it gives a very strong purpose of, uh, of what you of what you're doing yeah and uh, also uh, so, so i think what's really interesting uh, is you said this mindset which is created right and uh, yeah uh, on this planet on this entire planet you don't have the chance to meet a person talk to a person who wants uh, who, who is building spacecraft so often so we, uh, we we want to dive a bit also more deeper into your personal story and the early days okay. um, but maybe before we do this what does the exploration company do so the exploration company is, is building not 50 percent of a spacecraft that's flying humans but 100 percent <laughs> uh, and of course we start with cargo because having worked on a human rated vehicle uh, let's say we know how complex it is and how much time that's going to take so basically we're doing a, a capsule um, that capsule can go to space stations around the earth we'll also be able to space stations around the moon and we'll be able to land at lunar surface And that capsule meets the three requirements I was uh, describing at the beginning of our interview. So it's reusable, it can be refueled in orbit, and longer down the road, we want to reuse the design that will probably, of course, adapt mm -hmm. uh, to carry humans. Uh, so that's that's what we're doing. So we just to be very clear, we're not building a rocket. We are launcher agnostic, so we can be launched by, of course, European launchers, but also American launchers and Indian launchers and other launchers. Launcher just to need to be heavy enough because we weight around about 10 tons, so it's it's yeah. not completely small. Uh, but then, yeah, then we fly and we fly to stations around the Earth, around the Moon, and uh, we fly to a lunar surface. Yeah, when I um, uh, was uh, still at university, I also thought that hey, someone has to build these uh, these uh, um, uh, transportation vehicles. Um, there was the ATV, right, for ISS and, yeah. and so on. Yeah. Um, and I was also thinking about what you could do there. And then I, I thought there are two type of companies. There is one, there is there are logistics companies. I'm thinking now about uh, logistics on Earth, right? So there are the yeah. companies who are doing the logistics. And then there are companies like MAN who built the trucks for the logistics. Um, so as the exploration company, are you more like the... No, we do both. We do both. Okay. Yeah. We do both. So you're, you're, you're correct that most of the companies on Earth, you can think indeed about uh, Boeing, Airbus versus the uh, airlines companies or yeah. uh, exactly like the, uh, well, the, the car companies and then the companies or us driving or the logistic companies driving the trucks. But uh, we we develop, uh, we manufacture, uh, we integrate, we test, and we operate. So we do both. Reason for that is that it's still very difficult to operate a space vehicle. Mm. Uh, and we also think that there are a lot of synergies because then when you operate, you gather lots of data. Plus, you are in direct contact with your final clients, so you can really then take all these data and all the client feedback to step by step improve the design of the vehicles, so which meets furthermore. Um, the needs of the clients. And perhaps something I'd like to add on the design of the vehicle itself, because that's very specific. We are using, and it's only SpaceX doing that, uh, apart from us, again, we are very small compared to the big Starship, right? But one key requirement that we've applied is that we want to use more or less, let's say, the same architecture, the same tech brick, 
whatever the destination is. Uh, and this means a lot of economies of scales. This means also a desoptimization of the vehicle from a design point of view. Uh, but we believe that's the future. I, I like vehicles are going to be reusable. They can be refueled. And also mm -hmm. like you use like cars, right? Okay, you have, uh, if you take Volkswagen or you have different types of cars, but at the end it's the same brakes for, because you industrialize the stuff. Yep. And we think exactly like that. And I can tell you at the beginning, it was a huge design challenge because of course, if you have like just coming back on Earth or docking with a station on the Earth or like being able to support radiations to go to the moon or being able to land and etc., you don't need the same stuff. So you have to think in a modular approach where you have like the bricks, which are the core, which are the same, whatever the mission is. And then you shall be able to add landing legs or heat shields, the vehicles come back, etc. etc. So it's it actually it creates a lot of additional complexity, but afterwards. Uh, we believe is going to create additional simplicity and economies of scales. Yeah. And and you already touched on like the, the goal, right? You said that you want to send humans into space. I would have questions around, because obviously I think there are two camps in the world. Ones which say we need humans in orbit, uh, at least for for um, for the next uh, couple of decades. And there's the other ones where AI and computer robotics will advance so much we don't need that. But don't want to touch on this right now. But rather, I would like to understand, and the audience would like to understand, what are the next steps, technically, as well as commercially, which you're taking to achieve that goal of building a spacecraft which can bring cargo and humans around the, Earth, uh, around the moon? Uh, what are the next technical steps? And maybe you could already shed some light on what are your commercial partners? How do you finance that? Okay, so perhaps three questions uh, in, in what you're asking, the human versus robots the next steps and uh, the funding. Uh, so human versus robot, that's a debate I'm hearing. Sorry to be quite open. I'm hearing only in Germany. <laughs> a little bit in France, okay. but only in, mostly in Germany. Because you go to India, like, uh, yeah, we send humans. Yeah, US, and you go to US States, hey, same, we send right? humans. Yeah. You go to China, we send humans. So I don't know what is happening in Europe, but we don't dare. I mean, this is so... I, I don't understand, obviously. And it's... The reason why I'm saying I do not understand is like, hey, you have artificial intelligence coming in, or you have um, the discovery of the DNA and a new, complete new type of you know biomedicines popping up. So now this is the time of uh, flying humans in space. Yeah. So do we embrace it? Yes or no? And uh, of course, you know we can explain that flying humans into space is going to bring a lot of uh, uh, technological uh, like boomerang effect on Earth with all the techno for recycling and living in space, etc., which has huge effects, of course, on sustainable technologies that we need on Earth. Um, this is true. We can explain also, and this is true, that flying humans actually adds a lot of uh, not only complexity, but you need to be able, of course, to, uh, to maneuver with your vehicle in a very, very precise manner. And if you think about that and the docking with humans, etc., and you think about proximity operations, which have, of course, military uh, stakes, right? If you want to be able to remove a debris or a threat in a very precise manner, you better know how to fly humans because that's going to help you in the accuracy of uh, flying a vehicle around and then removing the target. Yeah. If you fly humans, you want to come, you bring these humans back, right? So you want to be able to re-enter. Yeah. And re-entering is a very, very strategic technology because what re-enters are missiles. And if you think about having capsules uh, around the Earth and the capacity to re-enter with these capsules when you want, where you want, 
at uh, the speed of the reentry. That's uh, you know that's not at all our goal, but that's clearly something uh, which is uh, has a lot of uh, defense uh, elements in it. So mm-hmm. flying humans means developing technologies which are absolutely strategic, simply to protect our people on Earth and simply to also protect our space infrastructures. But more than that, I think this is just a trend. So, I mean, not flying human is just not be part of the next step of space, uh, uh, of, of space, uh, of, 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 yeah, of, of the space industry. So, okay, so I'm closing that, but we are not, not that, not any, we'll continue to do the robotic stuff, but now we need to move to a digital era, which is flying humans, basically. So the, the, the next steps are very simple. So we've built this uh, expression company was created in July 21. What we've done in a, uh, the, uh, in a few months, is basically to build our first uh, re-entry demonstrator because that's a key techno that we need to de-risk. So that's done. That's going to fly on IN6, so hopefully uh, in 23. Uh, now we are full speed focused on the second uh, demonstrator, uh, which will also tackle re-entry. In this case, we'll perform a controlled re-entry, so we'll guide the vehicle when it re-enters. And we'll also test uh, a propulsion system, not at full scale, at, uh, let's say, a smaller scale than uh, what we're doing. We are the first in the world to use green propellant uh, for that kind of vehicle, because, of course, green propellant is, is known and is used on small satellites, yeah. but has never been used in, uh, in big vehicles like us. So that's the second techno risk that we want to, to tackle. And uh, the small model and the mid-size model will also enable us to ensure the stability of the shape and uh, and again, the, the working on the reentry on the capsule. So basically, the f- one flight in 23 with a very very small baby, right, which is called Bikini. One flight end of 24 uh, with SpaceX, uh, with a big baby or teenage, which <laughs> weight 1.6 ton. Uh, the diameter is 2.5 meter diameter, and here, technically, it's again focused on reentry plus propulsion, plus of course CNC, uh, and. What's from a business perspective was very important. We fly in 24 with clients. So we have mm. on board European Space Agency. Uh, we have on board uh, French Space Agency. We have on board German Space Agency. We have also uh, large space companies as clients. We also have uh, luxury companies as clients. So we have around about 300 kilogram capacity for clients. And we are fully pre-booked today. Nice. Uh, so contracts are currently being signed. So that's very, very important because it brings a lot of credibility. And we have clients who give us payloads, which values is one to two million. So it's a huge you know, sign of trust in our capacity to bring that stuff back. And once we've done that, basically, we did the baby, we did the teenage, then we go to the adult. And so we plan to have the full-scale vehicle in 26. Uh and uh, it will probably not be like the, the final, final one, uh, because we want to, you know, 26 is like tomorrow. So we need to be very, very fast. So it, our roadmap is that we start with a vehicle that flies around the Earth, and then we'll add the docking capacity to be able to dock with the stations. Okay. So we, yeah. we may change this roadmap to directly dock with stations, but basically that's a three-step roadmap with a baby, teenage, and, and yeah, adult. Nice. So, so the adult will also be able to transport humans? No, 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 that's no, a, that's the no, because, because that, that's, that's the, <laughs> I don't know, that's the that's okay. Gen 2, right? Yeah. So Gen yeah. 1 is a, no, because flying humans is a, if you, if you look around for benchmark, how, how much time do you need and like how much money you need? 
typically it takes you 10 years, typically it's ten you, it takes you 2 to 3 billion. Mm. Mm. It took 10 years to SpaceX, right? Uh, it took way more to Boeing. It took 10 years roundabout to the Chinese. So the benchmark of a good space industry is 10 years to have a capsule flying humans. Mm. And okay, I don't know the Chinese cost, but we know the amount of uh, NASA contract given to SpaceX is around about 3 billion. And not uh, all of that was used for, for Dragon. So, yeah. and if I go to a private investor, because again, we are first in the world to be privately funded for this kind of vehicle. Uh, and I'm telling the private investor that he needs to give me two to three billion and wait for 10 years and then he or yeah. she's going to have an amazing <laughs> you lost them. You lost them, That's yeah. not working. <laughs> yeah. So we'll do human. We can do it, I would say, fast. If Europe decides, and decision first decision will be taken this year, actually, mm. that Europe's going to fly human. In that case, of course, you know, we're going to accelerate our human-rated roadmap thanks to the support of European Space Agency. And we are, of course, in very uh, close discussion with them. And if Europe decide not to fly human, okay, that would be very, really a shame in my opinion, not only because that's good for the expression company, because I think that's very important for Europe, but okay. Uh, uh, then it will be more probably after a big event, uh, could be IPO, or could be like a big funding event so that we have enough funding to start flying humans. And uh, so Sven and I also have the perspective that you first should solve problems um, on uh, um, like on Earth potentially to basically create the revenue stream to um, fund the, the human exploration. And I think uh, your steps is also, hey, we, we support to build uh, or transport um, goods in space, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this will uh, be also more incremental. So, so uh, It's high risk, but it's less risk than transporting human. And once you have the vehicles, uh, you have your processes, you have the people, then you go go the next step and you can basically exactly. fund it with a revenue stream. Right? So that totally makes sense. Uh, last last question is, so you said 10 years and 2 billion. So um, uh, like how much more complex do you think, uh, like uh, maybe from a cost perspective or in general, is it to transport uh, humans versus cargo? Is it 10x, 100x more complex? Uh, It's, so you have some additional uh, technical complexity because you need, for example, to add an abort system. Mm. Uh, you need to add, of course, all the let's say, uh, living system. facilities, uh, life support system. Uh, we're going to have, of course, some very, very simple life support system because within the cargo, we transport some living stuff, right? Some plants, some mouses, mm. etc. But it's not toilets or uh, that kind of life support system that you need for humans. So it's more complex. But what really costs a lot of time and money is the certification. And, you know, when you develop an airplane, uh, like the time of development is one third, the time of certification is two thirds. That's a bit the same when you develop a capsule for flying humans. Uh, you need to perform a lot of tests. Sometimes, uh, at least what I've seen on Orion is that the test facilities are even designed for the vehicle themselves because you have very few vehicles in the world uh, that carry humans. So it's it's a lot of testing. Uh, and uh, so it's, let's say, the, the three failure tolerances, for example, we're going to have it already on the vehicle that dock with the stations because that's the human safety requirements uh, we need to have. So technically speaking, there are a few elements I've just described about system, for example, Uh, life support system, etc., that we need to add. But the, the big part is really the qualification to show that the vehicle is hyper safe. Hyper safe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, no, very exciting. You've mentioned a couple of customers, ESA, DLR, the so the German Aerospace Agency, the, the French uh, Aerospace Agency, and you're also based in 
in I think Bordeaux and Munich. So yes. uh, I see I see where that's coming from, and also multiple commercial customers. But I think like um, Estonia and I are in the aerospace ecosystem and the space ecosystem now since yeah ten years, and there always has been this, this discussion around the European Space Agency and uh, government bodies becoming first customers, anchor customers of uh, private and commercial space companies. Um, you having landed the German, the French, and the European Space Agency as customers is something really, I think, impressive. Do you see, um, A, how have you done it? And B, do you see a development and a bigger willingness from these agencies to spend on commercial yeah. activities with new space companies? Um, so to answer the second part of your question, yes, I think the most of the agencies now become really aware that supporting Uh, the space ecosystem in Europe, could it be uh, geospace or like the uh, incumbents or historic players, is more and more to go through service contracts and more and more to be an anchor client uh, to companies. So this is perhaps not done because there is always uh, some time between the awareness and the implementation. But I think the awareness is there. And if I look like five years ago, the awareness was not there. So we've made, I think, a lot of progress. Uh, but now it needs to be implemented, and not only with a very small contract, but also with very big contracts. Yeah. So how we've done that with uh, with the agencies, I think, okay, we started with very small contracts. So that this is something which is, uh, you know, the, the, they said the, the, the effort to sign contracts is not big. Uh, and also we've been very, very open with these agencies. So I have every six weeks, I have a checkpoint with CNES, every six weeks, so the French space agency, every six weeks, I have a checkpoint with the German space agency where I share more or less almost the same presentation I'm sharing with my board of directors. So I'm sharing my risk, I'm sharing my yeah. technical difficulties, I'm sharing my financial situation. And uh, we also had a lot of uh, technical changes with the agency. So we've been very, very transparent about where we are. And I think this has been critical to bring trust because when you buy something, somehow you trust. Yeah. So if the agency sees that what you is developing looks kind of credible, <laughs> Then, 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 you know, it's, it makes the stuff easier. So just it was easier because it was not a huge amount of money. It was very small money and it was a lot of transparency. Now I'm moving into a phase where I'm going to ask for bigger contracts. So millions and not hundreds of K or no. let's say uh, dozens of Ks, right? I'm going to ask for millions. So that's, that's another size. And uh, that's also uh, another kind of credibility that we need to bring on the table. But I think the process will be the same. Cool. Very nice. Very interesting. Exactly. So maybe maybe before diving a little bit more on how you want to fund your, your space uh, journey, um, you've said that there are other companies out there doing something similar, right? There's, oh, we at least see it from our outside perspective, right? You have mm -hmm. um, the Dragon Capsule, or we see that that's one, that's one established player. But then there are also companies which are moving into that space similar to what you do, or at least maybe adjacent, mm -hmm. like Vada Space Industries from the US, which is building a, a, a flyer. And I think there's also Tango Space, um, mm -hmm. if I'm correct, and, and, and a couple of others. Who would you say is your competition and how do you differentiate? Yeah, so there are many companies building now uh, small capsules. 
uh, which are either doing you know with manufacturing or doing uh, let's say bringing down stuff from the uh, space station to uh, to the earth you can think about inversion for example varda indeed which is very well funded has excellent engineers coming from spacex for many of them so yeah there is more and more companies willing to build capsule i think at least from what we, what I can what I can read and see around, you still have few, very very few companies willing to build a vehicle that flies to the stations. Uh, a big one, I mean. Most of the vehicles I see are small. Of course, you know they can become big, right? But if you start with small, it's it's a it's it's a new vehicle that you have to develop again when you when you increase the size because it's not like hey I'm going to increase the diameter. No, you have to redevelop a complete new vehicle, complete new propulsion system, etc. etc. So if you want to start big, you start big. If you start small, you start small. It's mm-hmm. difficult. And it takes like six, seven years to or five to five to six years to become bigger, right? So um, especially with regard to the propulsion system, you cannot scale it like that. So I see actually very uh, the main competitor for us, of course, is Dragon. This is very clear, but mm-hmm. I see also SpaceX as a partner, partner of course for the launch, but also partner on the midterm because on the midterm the goal of SpaceX, at least from what we can can read, and is not Dragon, it's Starship. Starship is going to be huge. Yeah. So for me, Starship is the container ship, and we want to be uh-huh. the truck. Uh, and and that's also the reason why for going to the moon, we've decided to use uh, Lux Methane. As a propellant, yeah. so that potentially we can be reused by refueled by Starship, right? So, uh, and so I think if we look short term in lower orbit, okay, Dragon is going to be our competitor. But when we start to be operational, so let's say 27, uh, Dragon at, for the time being, SpaceX is saying, hey, at the end of the decade, Dragon will be replaced by Starship. So. We'll see how that works because yeah. Starship is almost as big as as a station. So, okay, we'll see how it works. But I, my intuition is that especially around the moon, Starship is going to be the container ship, and we want to be like the last mile delivery that can be fully complementary with Starship. Around the Earth, I think the table is a bit more like difficult to 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 understand. But uh, whatever, if there is Starship around the around the Earth uh, delivering to to stations or being a station itself. There speed still be a need for smaller vehicles, very reliable, very affordable, going to stations. And last but not least, Europe has nothing, zero, yeah, yeah. zero to go there. Yeah, yeah. So, and with the private space stations, it means that Europe either, because today the way we fly our astronauts or we send cargo to station is we do a barter agreement with NASA. Yeah. Because the space yeah. station is public, right? But tomorrow it's private space station. So it means if we don't have our own vehicle, Literally, we're going to pay 0.5 billion, and when we speak about the moon, one to two billion per year cash from Europe yeah. to the US. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I appreciate that this uh, uh, money is invested here. And, uh, totally. Uh, yeah, that, that would have been my next next question. Um, but also, this uh, this sovereignty may also play a role. So, not only the financial yes. aspect, but the financial aspect is basically a no-brainer, right? So, yeah. are there not even other companies uh, same stage as you uh, uh, with the exploration company in Europe specifically? No. No, not We at all. The, <laughs> we are the most advanced in Europe. Nice. So, so. so um, Is there a magic sauce a source for you, or is it for you with all your past experiences? Hey, we just have to do it, guys. So, yeah, it was more. It was more. We just have to do it. So when you work on a Ryan vehicle, right, which was my case uh, when I was at Airbus, and you see that exploration is the next year, the next 
yeah. let's say the next uh, place that's going to be disrupted in space, that's going to be profoundly transformed. And you see that Europe has absolutely, the only thing Europe has today to participate to that is 50% of Orion. And I believe Orion is going to be outdated within the next years, not three, but like by the end of the decade will be outdated because it is not reusable, cannot be refueled. So we'll, you know, we'll have nothing to participate to the next step of humanity. So it was very clear for me that, hey, we need to, we need to build something here. And, and yeah, that's how we started. Nice. Uh, what a nice coincidence that you also uh, had the team together, basically, for this, this journey, right? So um, you went out of Airbus. Um, so that's, that's a short, short story. So at some point in time, you figured out, I, uh, I want to leave. Even if I have a cool job, I want to do this. And how did you then meet the other team members to realize this journey? So we had some uh, internal discussions. Uh, I, I shared my, let's say, my, my project with one person at the beginning, then a second one. Mm. That was it. And then, you know, and then we, we did a few, like in the weekend, uh, a few sketches, a few calculations. Then I spent the whole weekend uh, completely in a closed doors working on the business plan because I wanted to check that yeah. uh, we are talking about something that can be profitable. And then I decided to leave. So, and I decided to leave without any certainty that the other people, there were three people at that time mm. with whom I was discussing, would follow me. But sometimes you need to take a decision, this creates a dynamics. And indeed, after, so I, I, you know, I, I informed Airbus, uh, it was in April, and then in July, two other people followed. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah. And, and uh, what, what I felt from this conversation is you didn't even had any uh, uh, skepticism that this is the right decision, right? You just, you just went out and, and did it. Is it like this? It's, yeah. it's, it, was, it was, of course, it's like uh, giving birth. It was a, it was a process. Yeah. Uh, it took me some time to think about that. But then, you know, when it's clear, it's clear. You're just... Yeah. And then you, you had a kickstart, basically. Um, so you uh, worked uh, very soon together with investors, right? So, um, and they also uh, had nothing to do with space. Uh, for example, Cherry Ventures. Uh, so can you explain us a bit um, uh, how uh, you you um, raised raised your funds and why uh, and, and you're doing it uh, with these investors um, and yeah how how much money did you raise so far? Basically, so we have raised uh, uh, in November 21, so a few months after company creation, a seed of 6.8 million, and uh, now we've just signed a Series A of 40.5 million. Oh, congrats. So the biggest Series A uh, wow. I think ever raised in Europe by a space company. Wow. In 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 very difficult economic times, so I'm I'm quite proud of uh, what we've been able to to achieve here. And um, I think the reason why people have uh, trusted us, at, you know, at the first seed round is about to invest on people. And you are having a bold project with a team who had experience, which is quite rare, actually, and who had experience exactly in the field of, uh, of that project. So, and also the market is pretty clear. Okay, you're going to have a, uh, an increased number of space stations. Europe has no vehicles. You have like an anchor customer, which is the European Space Agency, which is pretty clear. And basically the point is, okay, if the team delivers, they're going to be something which can be uh, uh, quite big, actually. The second fundraising was completely different because we were in a very difficult uh, economic... I mean, not we, but like the economic situation uh, in 22 was uh, very difficult for, for fundraising in general. And I think what happened is that basically since company creation, we've been on track. We've been on track. Planning, cash cost. And this in an environment when inflation was raising like crazy, lead times were exploding like crazy. 
So it means that we had enough margin or we knew our job basically well enough so that we could, because of course we had these time problems and of course yeah. we had inflation problems. But like, despite that, we remained on track. And I think this was very impressive for the people with whom we spoke because there was the fear to invest in deep tech, the fear to invest in space. But okay, the team was not only experienced, but had demonstrated in the first one year and a half that they were basically meeting their metrics. And we're in an environment where people were investing because of data mm. and not because of story. And we're bringing basically the data. And we are also bringing data on the consumer side that the first prototype was fully pre-booked. Even if all the contracts were not signed, that was a sign of trust. And they did also a lot of interviews within the space environment with agencies. And, and I would like, I'm super grateful to the space agency because they accepted to speak with control investors. So they also helped us a lot. Uh, and basically the feedback around was, was quite positive. So, yeah, I, I think it was really based on, on data and execution. And that's also going to be, of course, now my priorities for the next, uh, uh, for the, yeah, next uh, yeah. one to two years, uh, because this is the only way to be able to raise again afterwards. <laughs> nice. And I, I have to say, um, in this podcast, the, the confidence of, of the situation and that, that we need this, uh, you transported, uh, uh, makes, makes me understanding that investors put so much uh, money into this. Uh, so um, uh, one, one thing we would be curious of is um, you uh, also how you pitch to investors. I think you said um, there will be a lot of commercial driver that we need this. And I would uh, like Sven and I are always interested. What will be the the big thing um, in the space ecosystem? Um, will it be space in space manufacturing? Will it be mining? So what for you, uh, yeah, from your perspective, okay. will be the biggest driver here? No, the, the way I pitch to investors actually is that uh, there'll be a 400 percent growth of the infrastructures. Mm -hmm. OK. So stations, basically, yeah. okay. uh, because that's that's just a fact, and and I think there'll be uh, also we and Starship is going to accelerate that tremendously, and I believe there'll be not only infrastructures where people can live, but also infrastructures to store, for example, mm. computers, and also military infrastructures to store some stuff that can basically defend and protect the space critical infrastructure. So all these infrastructures will have to be supplied. Yeah. And to supply an infrastructure, that's a very specific kind of technology that you need to develop because you need to master docking, proximity operations. And then if you want to use the vehicle to make it very affordable, you need to master re-entry. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's basically what I sold. Uh, and, and then what I also sold is uh, the way we presented is that we are not a company which is doing like you invest a lot of millions and then something happens. But we've had this roadmap with baby steps and teenage steps and adult steps. And I think this was a de-risking factor for the investors. Yeah. And you basically make it independent of one specific trend. It's just that yeah. whatever will be the biggest trend, in general, there are so many. Basically said that our core market was to resupply space stations around the earth because that's the first step we're going to do. And we've presented our company as a logistic company. Yeah. Because in orbit manufacturing yeah. or etc., this may become big, but this may also become nothing. Yeah. So I cannot bet, you know, the future of the company of something which is so risky. Yeah. So I'm betting on something which has existed since decades. <laughs> and worst case, we're going to fly once per year because that was the rate of flight of ATV, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah. Cool. Very nice to hear. So the DHL of uh, of, of of space. Very cool. So two final questions before we have to wrap up. Unfortunately, Danny and I had tons of more questions, but maybe for the next time. So one, one, one personal question. 
What's more stressful, being VP at Airbus or startup <laughs> CEO? Yeah, startup CEO is of course more stressful, but of course it's a it's a joy which is very very profound and 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 yeah, it's incommensurate because not only yeah. I think we unleash our talents, but I have the chance to have an amazing team, and I think we contribute to unleash the talents of others while working together, and this is a very profound joy. Yeah, yeah. That's, 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 I, I couldn't agree more and Danny and I feel the same way, but good to hear. So maybe in another life, then I can do, uh, become also a VP at Airbus to compare, uh, yeah. when I want to have a less stressful <laughs> life. Uh, but, uh, exactly. Um, the last thing uh, we want to, we are always asking our guests is, uh, who should we have next here on the podcast? Yeah. So I would recommend, uh, Geraldine Najar. She's the director for commercial space and procurement and industry at Open Space Agency. And uh, she's yeah. at the core of the transformation of ISA. And uh, yeah, I think it would be great to have her uh, because she can explain what she's going to implement, but also you can challenge her to make sure that she implements <laughs> really what is needed for the space tech industry in Europe. Excellent, excellent guest. Uh, we, we, we would be happy if you could make an intro and we would love to talk to her. Yeah, I do so. But first of all, thank you very much for taking the time um, thanks for the listeners to, to tune in again. And uh, yeah, Helen, thank you very much. And thanks for the great work at the Exploration Company. Thank you, Sven. Thank you, Daniel, for the invitation. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. Lift off. We have a lift off.